Great. Yesterday, King Charles was literally given the crown jewels, right? They think they're worth more than five billion pounds. More than five billion pounds. He was given the crown jewels. But before he was given the crown jewels, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave him a Bible. And inside that Bible were the words, this is the book, the word of God, the most valuable thing the world can afford. Right, so there's a man sitting on a big seat, about to be given five billion pounds worth of stuff, um, and before that he gets the most valuable thing, and it's a book. And that is what we believe at the Globe Church. If you're new to the Globe Church, um, we believe that the Bible is more valuable than anything this world can give us. Um, we think it teaches us who God is. I think it's, it's the way that God speaks to us. It's his living, active, true word of God, and it's invaluable. So we're going to dive into Ezra chapter 1 and 2 today, and I'm going to ask for God's help um, before we do. Uh, Father God, we ask for your help now as we come before your word. It's the most valuable thing the world can afford. Um, so Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to hear what you have to say um, and help us understand, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Right, so do get your Bibles open um, to Ezra. I think it's roughly 472 if you're in the blue Bibles. My Bible is page 616. don't know if that matters to anyone. If you've hit Psalms, you've gone too far. Um, we're going to look today at Ezra chapter 1 and 2. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, and there's going to be a lot of reading. Um, but we're going to break it up into different sections. So first of all, we're going we're to tackle Ezra chapter 1. I'm going to read that. We're going to run through it, try and understand what it's saying. Um, and then we'll think what that means for us today. Um, and then we'll do the same in, in Ezra chapter 2. Um, but for a bit of context before we do, um, for those that were here last week um, and heard Mike preach, the context here is that God's people, the Israelites, are not where they should be. They're in exile. They're scattered across the lands of Persia. They're living under kings and rulers who don't know them, who don't love them, who don't care for them. And they're doing all sorts of things, variously described as being in slavery, in trouble, in pain, in exile. That's the situation that they're in. Um, and then we get this letter written by King Cyrus that we started looking at last week. So I'm going to read Ezra chapter 1 first. Um, if you look at your Bibles with me. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms on earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him come up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the people of the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
All of their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts, in addition to the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 silver pans, 30 gold bowls, 410 matching silver bowls, and 1,000 other articles. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazzar brought all of these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So here we are. The Israels, the Israels, the Israelites are in exile all across Persia, and this is the letter that is written um, by, or the decree that is made by Cyrus um, out to the lands. Um, so we're going to rattle through this. I'm going to quickly scan through chapter one, and we're going to see some of the big points, some of the things that are happening here. Um, and the first thing that we cannot miss as we read Ezra chapter one is that this is showing us God's providence. Right, it's showing us God's providence. Mike touched on this last week. Um, but God's providence, that's, it's a long Bible word. Many of you might not have heard it before. God's providence is the intricate and eternal relationship between God the creator and the earth he created. And it, by his providence, God works out his will through the choices and actions of people. That's what we mean by providence. God working out his will through the choices and actions of people. And we see that throughout this passage, don't we? We see that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to write this letter in verse 1. We see in verse 5 that all the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, everyone whose heart God had moved. This is the work of God to make this proclamation by Cyrus. And it's the work of God again to move the hearts of the people when they do return. We can't miss it. This is God's providence. He is the one who is acting. For much more on that, um, listen back to Mike's sermon last week. Um, He talked about that that bit in verse 1 about the prophecy, the word spoken by the Lord through Jeremiah and Isaiah. This amazing fulfillment we see here. Um, So listen back to that to hear more on that. We can't miss this about God's providence. And what we're seeing here is a proclamation throughout the realm. See that in verse 1. A little bit like that um, emergency notice message we all got on our phones a couple of weeks ago. That was a proclamation from the government throughout the realm. Every single person got it. Um, Lily and I were in the pub uh, when that came. And um, she got so excited that she she leant forward over a candle and her entire head caught fire. So we had this bizarre situation where my wife's head was on fire and everybody's phone in the entire pub was going off with a siren. And it was wild. That's sort of what's happening here, um, but without the flaming woman. Um, It's a message that's going out to the entire land. Um, Probably messengers on horseback going town to town, reading these words that we see in this chapter. And, and what is he saying? What, is, what are the words of the proclamation? Well, yes, there was that exciting one last week. There's been another great proclamation of our lifetime recently, hasn't there? March the 23rd, 2020. Boris Johnson sitting in the living room at 10 Downing Street. What did he say? What was his proclamation to us all? Go on, someone said it. 
you must stay at home. Right? Boris Johnson proclaimed to the land, you must stay at home. Well, Cyrus here is doing the exact opposite of that. Right? Boris said, we must stay at home. Cyrus, look at what it says. Any one of his people among him, in verse 3, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. Cyrus is saying to the Israelites, you're free to go home. That's the proclamation. The thing that they've been waiting for all these years. So it's a great proclamation, and you're free to go home, Cyrus says to the people of Israel. And it's important, right? One thing um, that I've jumped at is that this was put into writing at the end of chapter one, uh, verse one, sorry. And this is just a little note, make note of that now, because that's going to become important again in Ezra chapter six, um, because it doesn't all go straightforwardly, and there's lots of exciting things to come. Um, Cyrus doesn't stay in power. Spoiler, there's a new guy called Darius. He doesn't really want the Israelites to do what they do. But when he finds this letter, it goes well for Israel. So look forward to that in Ezra chapter six. But it's put into writing, it's a proclamation, and it's telling Israel to go home. And what are they to do when they go home? Verse 3, they are to build a temple. End of verse 2, sorry. They're to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. They're to go and to build this building. But it's not just any temple, right? Go and build a temple, verse 2. Verse 3, go and build the temple of the Lord. This isn't a greenfield project. This isn't them just starting from scratch, stroking their chin, being like, what would a nice thing to do? Oh, I'll go and build a temple. No, this is Cyrus saying, you've got to go and build the temple of the Lord. And when we see the Lord like that in capital letters, that's God's name. That's Yahweh. Israel are being told to go and build Yahweh's house. And if you look back through um, earlier passages of the Old Testament, we see the descriptions of the beautiful temple that Solomon constructed. It was destroyed 70 years earlier. It was beautiful, it was ornate, it was majestic, it was an appropriate place for the people of Israel to go and worship God. And here Cyrus says, is, go and build that again. It was destroyed, but go and build the temple. So that's the proclamation. And then in verse 4, we see who this is written to. The people of any place where the survivors may now be living. Now that word, survivors can be translated as those who remain. Um, So if you were so inclined, you might say that God's people are the remainers. Um, But you might not say that. Someone might say that. Um, So uh, those who remain. And from that word remain, we get the word remnant. Okay, So people might have heard of the idea of a remnant. And the remnant are the people of God who survived the period of exile. And the remnant are so, so important. They're critical to understanding the promises of God. Because the remnant are the line of continuity that takes you from Abraham all the way through to Jesus and then into the present day. Think of it a little bit like a a fishing rod. I'm not a fisherman. You might be able to tell in a second. Um, But when a fisherman casts his fishing rod, there is a line, and it it is tense, right? It's a clear line that goes all the way. And at the end of the line, they've got a promise. There's a bit of bait that they're waiting for a nice big salmon to come and get onto and reel it in, and, you know, then they really tuck into the promise. But if that line is cut, the bait just sinks away, the salmon munches it in the sea, and the fisherman never sees the promise. 
right? The line has to be continuous in order for the promise to be revealed. And we see these promises that were made. Mike mentioned them last week. There was a promise made to Abraham. Your nations will be great. More than the stars in the sky will be your offspring. Okay, and if, if the end of Israel was when the temple was destroyed 70 years ago and this remnant didn't exist, then that promise dies. So the remnant means that that promise can continue. And then there was the promise to David that one of your children, your son, will be king who will reign for eternity. But what if there is no Israel? What if Israel just goes into exile and drifts away? No, that is why the remnant is so important. So these survivors, this remnant, these people, and we're about to meet them, and you're going to look forward to reading through chapter 2, I tell you that. We're about to meet all 42,000 of them. There's a remnant that are the people who safeguard God's promises, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, and they are the ones who live God's promises all the way through. So that's what we see. Those are the people. Those are the survivors that are being spoken to in verse 4. And then this idea of continuity comes out all the way through the rest of chapter 1. The family heads, Judah, Benjamin, priests, Levites, they are the social, political, economic leaders of Israel. And what Ezra is saying is these are the same people who were around before. There's a continuity. And then this whole thing about the inventory. You see, you you hear all of that that was said. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the old king. He was the one that destroyed the temple. He went in, he stole a bunch of silver, took it and put it in his own temple. Right, so that's God's silver in Nebuchadnezzar's temple. What Cyrus has done in chapter, in verse seven here, is he's gone and got that and he's bringing it back to God's temple. So there's a continuity. It's the same God. It's the same temple. It's the same people. And this is so important. So that's what we see in chapter 1. It's God's, by God's providence, we see this proclamation that Israel can go home. They can build the temple, Yahweh's house. And they are God's remnant people who provide continuity to his promises. So that's rattling through chapter 1. But what does this mean to us? Right? Oh, when we're reading God, we've just said at the start that we know that God's word is more valuable than anything that the world can give us. If this is just a history lesson about God's people, what does this, what does this mean to us? Okay, we're going to try and dig in and find a couple of things in here that really make a difference to us today. And I think to do that, we've got to spend a bit of time thinking about Ezra chapter, uh, verse 3. So I'm just going to get some water Spend some time thinking about verse 3. Let's read verse 3 again. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. May his God be with him. See, what we see here is this is about God being with his people, dwelling with his people. And I, I don't know if there are people here who aren't Christians, who don't know God for themselves. Did you know that we have a God who wants to be with you? He wants to be in relationship with you. If there is one thing you take away from this talk, that's the thing I want you to take away. There is a God, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the Lord, the God of heaven in verse 2, who wants to be with his people and dwell with them. And you see, the Bible story is a story of God and his people dwelling 
and then pushing apart. Dwelling together and then push apart. And Eden, Adam and Eve were created and they dwelt with God. They walked in the cool of the day. They spoke to him. They chatted to him. They dwelt with him. And then they ate the fruit that he said they couldn't eat. And they were apart. And then for a long time, Israel were, were far from God. They went through, they went to Egypt and they were in slavery. And then God rescued them and there was the Exodus. And they came back together and they had the tabernacle. And they could dwell together in the tabernacle. And then they rejected God again and they spent time apart again. And then they had the temple, and they could dwell together in the temple. And then Solomon started building idols in the temple, so it was destroyed. And then here, Ezra is saying, God wants to be with his people, so rebuild that temple so God and his people can dwell together again. That's what we're seeing. This is about God being with his people. And what's the temple got to do with it? It's all well and good saying God wants to be with his people, but what, what's the temple? Well, to Israel at this time, the temple is where the divine and the physical collided. It is where God spent his time. It's where the divine, where God came to earth. The God of up there, Yahweh, the God of heaven, came down to earth and was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so you build the temple to be with God because that is the place where the divine and the physical collide. For Israel at this time, this is an invitation to dwell with God. Come back to Israel, rebuild the temple, and be with God. And for many of us, I think, I, I think for many of us, we live in a situation that isn't hugely dissimilar from Israel in exile. Um, we live in worlds where people don't fully understand God. The leaders that we live under don't always want to do God's will. There are temptations. It sometimes feels like we're in the desert. It's hard, right? We suffer. And in much the same way that the Israelites are invited to go to a place where the divine and the physical collide, as we read this, the other side of Jesus, we know that there is the perfect place in Jesus Christ, where the divine and the physical collide. He was God made man. At Christmas, we often use the word like incarnate, don't we? God incarnate, God on earth. In fact, and he even called himself a temple, not in like a my body is a temple, like eat clean, train dirty kind of way. Like he said he is a temple because he is the place where God and man collide. And so if we are to follow this invitation to dwell with God. For us today, it doesn't look like going to Jerusalem and building a temple. It looks like turning away from those things in our exiled life that grip us and moving towards God. Trusting him. Praying to him. Believing him. Sharing our burdens with him. Crying to him. Celebrating his victory. Rejoicing with him. Worship him. That's what it means. So just as the Israelites are invited to dwell with God, there is an invitation that's open to all of us too. We all are invited to dwell with God. And if we want to dwell with God, we look to Jesus and we move towards him. So that's where we get to in chapter one. That's the big point. 
Israel are invited to dwell with God. And fortunately for us, right, fortunately for us, this side of Jesus, there were a good number of them who did respond to that call. And we see in verse 11, as such a small comment, it's a little laconic, understated verse. The exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Don't, mis- don't mis- misunderstand that. Don't under- underestimate the importance of that verse. This is a huge turning point of the Bible. The exiles leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem. They leave exile and they go to the place where they can dwell with God. And as we read Ezra chapter 2 now, we're going to meet a whole bunch of those people. Um, So I'm going to read it. I was practicing this, and it's actually really, really hard to read both the names and the numbers. It gets very tongue-tied. So I've asked Biff very kindly. He's going to read the numbers. And so if you hear a disembodied voice shouting, like, 180, uh, that's Biff. Um, so we're going to read Ezra chapter 2. Do get your Bibles open back. If you've um, lost, lost page, get back in there. Um, and stick with me through this, because this is important. This is the most valuable thing that man can afford. Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these are the people of the promise, of the province, who came up from captivity of the Israels, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sehariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbah, Bigvi, Rehem, and Barna. The list of the men of the people of Israel, the descendants of Parosh, 2,172, of Shephathiah, 372, of Arah, 775, of Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, of Elam, 1,254, of Zachary, 945, of Zachary, 760, of Bani, 642, of Bebai, 623, of Asgad, 1,222, of Adonikam, 666, of Bigvi, 2,056, of Aden, 454, of Ata through Hezekiah, 98, of Bezai, 323, of Jorah, 112 of Hashem 223 of Gibar 95 the men of Bethlehem 123 of Netopah 56 of Anathoth 128 of Asmaveth 42 of Kiriath-Jeriam Kephira and Beeroth 743 of Remah and Geba 621 of Michmash 122 of Bethel and I 223 of Nebo 52 of Magbish 156 of the other Elam 1,254 of Harim 320 of Lord Hadid and Ono 725 of Jericho 345 of Sinar 3,630 the descendants of Jedidiah through the family of Jeshua 973 of Immer 1,052 of Pasher 1,247 of Harim 1,017 the descendants of Jeshua and Cadmiel through the line of Hodvia 74 the singers the descendants of Asaph 128 the gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom, Eta, Talmon, Akub, Hatita, and Shobai. 139. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hasufa, Tabuath, Keros, Siaha, Paidon, Lebanon, Hagabah, Akub, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gideel, Geha, Raiha, Rezin, Nekoda, Gazam, Uzar, Pesia, Bessai, Asnam, Meonim, Nefusim, Babkuk, Hakupa, Harfa, Basleth, Mehida, Harsha, Barka, Sesera, Tema, Nezia, and Hatifa. The descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Hasorophath, Peruda, Jala, Darkon, Gideel, Shephathiah, Hatil, Pokarath, Hazabeam, and Ami. The temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon. 392. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The, 
The following came up from the towns of Tel Tel Melha, Tel Harsha, Karab, Adon, and Immer, and they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, 652. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakos, and Basilii, a man who married the daughter of Basilii, the Gileadite, was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering the Urim and the Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360. Besides the 7,337 manservants and maidservants, they also had 200 men and women singers. They had 736 horses, 254 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. Ah, there we go. Ezra chapter 2, everyone. Who's read that before? Who's read it out loud? Ah, yeah. Um, so what are we going to get from Ezra chapter 2? Now, clearly, this is mainly a list of names and numbers. And so we've got to think, well, what's God trying to teach us through these names and through these numbers? And I'm going to pick out one detail, and then we're going to have um, uh, two, two main points that come out of it. But there's one detail in this passage um, that I want to draw your eyes to. And that is chapter, uh, verse 40... Look at how many Levites there are. 74. Okay? We've seen a list of 42,360 people, and there's only 74 Levites. Now, if people are familiar with much of the Old Testament, that might start ringing a few bells. Because the Levites are one of the 12 major tribes of Israel. In fact, they're a really, really important tribe. They're the ones who were given all of the instructions about how to run the temple. Okay, so we've got a group of people going back to Israel who are going to build this temple, not just any temple, the temple. They're going to restore the temple of God. And yet there's only 74 people who know what they're doing. That's going to be a problem. And it really will be a problem. We'll find out in Ezra chapter 7 and 8. I'm just going to put that out there because it's important, right? If, if this is about restoring the temple... A big part of the restoration process is practicing God's law. And everyone, anyone who's read the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, that book was written to the Levites. So there's something for us to think about. But we're going to think about two big points that we get from the book of Ezra. Firstly, the numbers. Right? The numbers are painstakingly detailed. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm not very detailed. And um, I think if I was writing this, I would probably go like, okay, there are roughly 1,000 people from Parosh and like uh, 3,000 from Pahath Moab, and uh, don't worry about the Levites because only 70 of them, and Bezai 300, and so on and so on. I'm really not very good at, at details. There's a reason why I asked Biff to do the numbers. He's a very numerate chap. Um, he knows all of the numbers. He's, like, he's really good at it. Um, so, but I'm not very good at numbers. And 
so I was asking my question, why do they bother being so annoyingly detailed? Right? Like, I, I can't do detail very well. Like, why does it matter that it was 2,172 people from Paros? Why not just, like, roughly 2,000? Or 95 from Gibbar? Okay, just round that up to 100. Why, why does it matter? Well, it matters because every single person counts. Every single person counts, right? I, um, my first job, I, I was working for quite a big company. There were 600 of us that started on the same day. And I had a badge, Johnny Miller, number 301. And um, we were told when we first turned up, numbers 1 to 200 over there, 201 to 400 over there, 401 to 600 over there. And the being given a number made it feel hugely impersonal. Right, I'm number 301, okay, I'll go with all the sheep and go to the middle column. It made me think, oh, they don't really know me or care about me. And I think that can be the temptation, right? We can see this list of numbers and be like, well, who are these people? It's just like an anonymous splodge of numbers. Okay, let me paint a slightly different picture. Imagine we are the descendants of Parosh. And I'm counting the people, right? And we've got 2,171 of us are on the bus and they're going up to Jerusalem. There's 2,171. And I'm there and I go, Biff. I can't imagine there were loads of Biffs in Parosh. <laughs> Biff, Biff, do you want to come with me? To Come on, we've been called home. Cyrus has said that we can go home, we can go back, we can dwell with God. We're going to build a temple. We're going to meet God again. All of those promises. Remember, oh, we've read those promises in Abraham. God will be our God and we will be his people. We're going to have a promised land. He's going to feed us with milk and honey. We've got all these promises. Come on, Biff. Come with me. And then Biff gets on the bus. Right, 2,172. We're celebrating. Come on, Biff. And then I look at Janet. Come on, Janet. Look, we're going to fill the promises. Come on. And then Janet says, actually... Oh, got to get to bed, work in the morning. Oh, yeah, I've got a meeting with Betty on, on Wednesday, so I can't really go and dwell with God this week. Uh, what about next week? No, no, come on, Janet. No, seriously, we've got to go now. We've really got to go now. And Janet stays. She chooses to stay in exile. And so I have to write 2,172. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because for every person on this list, these are the ones that have returned, but there were many hundreds and thousands who, who didn't return, who chose to stay in exile rather than be with their God, dwell with their God, build the temple so that they can worship him once again. And every single person who did make that journey counts and is counted. And that's true to us today as well. We talked in chapter 1 about how there is, a, there is an opportunity for us to move towards Jesus and, and respond to the, the invitation to dwell with God. Every single one of us counts. Jesus describes this as, as God being like a, a shepherd, right? And, and he's got a hundred of sheep and one of the sheep goes astray and he's going to go and he's going to do everything he can to get that one because every single one counts. A shepherd wouldn't let one sheep go. God counts every single person who ends up with him. There is rejoicing in heaven when people choose to dwell with God. We're told that clearly. There is rejoicing in heaven. Every single person counts. And so 
I guess there are, there are a couple of different reactions to that, right? There are some of us um, who are tempted to think we don't count. Know that God counts you. If today or any time you have said, Jesus, you are Lord, and you believe in your heart and you proclaim with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, you count. Your name is written down. Everybody counts. And maybe there are some of us who are tempted to think, okay, yeah, I've, I've earned it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. No, you, you count as one. You, are, you count because Jesus Christ counts you. So those are the numbers. Numbers, everybody counts. And then finally, and I realize we're going on, finally, there is security in a name. There is security in a name. You see, all of these people on this list, um, we don't really see them ever again in the Bible, many of them, apart from, incidentally, actually, Nehemiah chapter 7, where we see exactly the same list again. So one day, um, we can do that whole reading thing again. But we, very rarely, we don't really see them anywhere else. Right? We don't know anything about them other than their name. That's the only thing we ever find out about these people. So Biff Parosh didn't get in to being part of God's people because he did anything to earn that. No, he got in because he could prove that he was in the Parosh clan and the Parosh clan was part of Abraham and therefore he was an honorable heir of the promise. There's security in a name. We don't know any of these other people. Who do you know from Netophah? Have you read about them anywhere? You could go on. But what, what does that mean for us, right? I don't see Miller on this list. How, do, how does that relate to me today, or, or Sharrock, or Roe, or whatever the name is? We don't see, I don't think there's anyone in here with one of these surnames. If there is, let yourself known to me afterwards, because that would be really cool. But I think probably every single one of us in this room has looked at that list and not seen our surname. So what does that mean for us? Well, good news for those that were listening in the last term. We've just come out of Galatians. Because as I said earlier, the promises of Abraham, that his nation would be made great, there was a line of that promise. And that promise landed with Jesus. It was fulfilled with Jesus Christ. And so what that means, and we'll read this now out of Galatians chapter, 26, uh, chapter 3, verse 26. Don't worry about turning there. You are all sons of God through your faith in Christ Jesus. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And here's the kicker, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? So security is found in a name. And for all of those people from Shephathiah and Haggai and whatever the other words were in there that I can't remember anymore, Senai, Jericho, Harim, Asgad, Bebai, Benai, all of those people had security because of their name. But today there is a name that goes above every other name. The name to which one day every knee will bow, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And so our security is also found in a name, but praise God it is not the name Johnny Miller because I would not do it myself. My security is found in the name of Jesus Christ. And that is true for every single one of us. 
There is security in a name because of what Jesus did when he died. He died for our sins so that we could be made right. It meant that when we go, when we go, and, when we go towards to dwell with God, we don't need to go through a temple anymore because Jesus has made the way perfect for us to go to God. And that means that if you are found in Christ, your security is found in a name, and that is the name of Jesus. So let's land this then. Um, we've seen in Ezra chapter 1 and 2, God's people are returning to Jerusalem to dwell with God once again. Every one of them counted. Every one of them known and secure by the promises made to them by God. And now we in this room have security in those same promises, thanks to Jesus, the name above every other name. So let's seek to dwell with him this week. That's my prayer, that we would all seek to dwell with Jesus this week. Um, Let me pray, and then the band are going to lead us in a song, um, There Is No Other Name, um, to help us respond. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that the promises that you made to Abraham, the promises that you made to David, um, the promises that you made to your people throughout the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that we can dwell in you forever. And we praise you that that's true. Uh, We pray, Lord, that our hearts would know that, would understand that this week. Um, And we pray that it would be our, our glory In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.